Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Um, my name's Sarah Crompton, and I'm really very pleased to welcome you to the RA's second Festival of Ideas. And I'm even more pleased to be here to provide an introduction to uh, Michael Rosen. Um, it is true that if I stood there and listed all his achievements, he wouldn't have time to speak at all. Um, so I'm going to say very briefly that he is, of course, a children's novelist, poet, and a writer of more than 140 books. Um, his first children's book was Mind Your Own Business, published in 1974. Perhaps his most famous, which I'm sure everybody in the room has uh, recited at one time or another, is We're Going on a Bear Hunt, uh, which really has been on our lips for, uh, since it first came out in 1989. His sad book, which he wrote in 2004, is one of the best and most powerful studies of bereavement ever written in, I think, in any form. Um, he has devised university courses on children's literature, taught in many universities, and spoken in innumerable schools. From 2007 to 2009, he was the sixth children's laureate. And he's also, of course, a broadcaster, most notably as a presenter of the BBC's long-running series about language, Word of Mouth. In all his many roles, he's been a fighter for many causes. Um, and increasingly, these have crystallised around the subject of education. So today, he's going to talk to you about the vital subject of creativity in education. Then he and I will talk for a bit, and then I'll come to you for some questions. So the, all that it remains for me to do is to introduce the wonderful Michael Rosen. Hello. Nice to see you. Thanks very much for coming out on a Sunday. It's all sorts of lovely things to do, and you come to see me, that's very kind. Uh, we're going to start with some pictures, I'll show you a couple of pictures. That one there. Oh, it says, hello, Michael Rosen, nice to see you. Oh, that's very good. That's kind of bimedial, isn't it? That is very good. It is... No, I shouldn't do that. There's a picture, and there's another picture. And we'll go back to that picture. And uh, there's that picture. And we'll leave that up for a while, and we'll have a, a little talk about these. So uh, they both belong right here at the Royal Academy. Um, and thanks to the RA for reproducing them. Thank you. And they're both by the artist, maybe you know this anyway, Henry Fusley. And he lived from 1741 to 1825. He was born in Zurich, Zurich as we sometimes say, Switzerland, the second of 18 children. In, nine, in 1765, he visited England, where he supported himself uh, for some time by what's called miscellaneous writing. Not sure what that is. Eventually, he became acquainted with Sir Joshua Reynolds, to whom he showed his drawings. Following Reynolds' advice, he decided to devote himself entirely to art. 
1770, he made an art pilgrimage to Italy, where he remained until 1778, changing his name from Fusli to the more Italian-sounding Fusili. Early in 1779, he returned to Britain, and in 1788, Fusli married Sophia Rawlins, originally one of his models, and he soon after became an associate of the Royal Academy. The early feminist, Mary Wollstonecraft, whose portrait he had painted, planned a trip with him to Paris and pursued him determinedly, Wikipedia says, whatever that means. But after Sophia's intervention, the Fuseli's door was closed to her forever. Fuseli <laughs> later said, I hate clever women. They are only troublesome. In 1790, he became a full academician, presenting Thor battering the Midgard serpent, there you go, uh, as his diploma work. And in 1799, Fusli was appointed professor of painting to the academy. Four years later, he was chosen as keeper and resigned his professorship, but resumed it in 1810, continuing to hold both offices until his death. So what has this got to do with anything we're discussing today? Well, one of my key words for this talk is interpretation. We might say that all art and all commentary about art involves interpretation. By filling you in on a few data details about Fusli, I think I've already affected your interpretation of the pictures. I suspect so. I'm guessing that now I've told you Fusli's dates, some of you maybe are slotting the pictures into your mind's filing systems to do with the years around 1800. Other artists you know of, perhaps. You might be thinking about Switzerland, or perhaps Joshua Reynolds. You might be thinking about what dangers or perhaps what delights lay in his way by way of clever women. Or what a jerk he was to say that thing anyway. <laughs> There's another aspect about these two pictures that I can mention, as with thousands of others in the Western traditions, Fuseli has used the medium of graphic art to interpret two works of literature. So, whoops, wrong way. Oh, end of slideshow, let's try again. There, that one. So that one is from the plays of William Shakespeare, as it says, that's in actual fact from The Tempest. So we have The Tempest and we have Thor. All right, we'll leave Thor up for a bit more. So he's used the medium of graphic art to interpret two works of literature. And I'm guessing that most people here, I'm only guessing, will be familiar with at least something of the literature that Fuseli has interpreted in these pictures. Thor, for example, he's, he's very popular these days, isn't he? Because he's one of the Avengers. And in another form, he was, maybe it's similar, was the Norse god of war. His name was taken to make Thursday. Yes, Thor's day. So every time we say Thursday, we're remembering Thor, or not. The other day I was watching the Graham Norton show, and Chris Hemsworth, who plays Thor in The Avengers, <laughs> was on the couch talking about how he's collected three or four of the hammers that he's wielded in the films. Also on the couch was Paul Rudd, who plays Ant-Man in other movies. Kit Harrington, who plays Jon Snow from the TV film series Game of Thrones, and Julianne Moore, who plays all sorts of people in many different types of films. I wonder if Fusley would have thought her clever and troublesome. <laughs> Kit Harrington said that he has a giant statue of himself which he doesn't know what to do with. <laughs> Graham Norton said he could bury it in the garden. 
and years later, people might come along and find it and wonder what had been going on. <laughs> Thor said that he tries to, well, it's not actually Thor, but you know what I mean, said that he tries to put the hammers on the mantelpiece, but his wife takes them away. He then said his son picked up one of the hammers and asked him if it was a toy. No, said Thor, that's the real one. <laughs> so, the Norse myth was meeting Marvel Comics, meeting Game of Thrones, and the relative reality or unreality of film set props from the Hollywood version of the Norse myth. There are a lot of intertwined narratives going on there. Now, I'm not sure how the Norse myths made their way into Fuseli's consciousness. I knew them well from one of my favorite books as a child, an anthology of the tales by Barbara Leone Picard. I can retell, or if you prefer, interpret them because of my memory of them. In fact, when I've been put on the spot by my own children to make up a story, I've secretly plundered the myths for storylines and motifs, rather as Hollywood does. And if there's time, schools can help children do, be like Shakespeare, steal a story and adapt it, change the setting, switch the gender of one of the lead characters, add in a subplot, and you've got a hit. My favorite Norse myth when I was a boy was the one sometimes known as the Binding of Fenra. Fenra is a giant wolf, and a key moment in the story involves a test of courage. The god Tur puts his hand in Fenra's mouth as evidence of the god's good faith in binding Fenra with what looks like nothing more than a garland of flowers. I won't spoil the story, other than to tell you that Tur's name was taken to give us Tuesday, Tur's day. These little interconnected anecdotes tell me that stories don't just begin and end. They exist in chains of memories, retellings and interpretations, even to the point where some end up on our tongues every day, quite literally, as days of the week, Tuesday, Thursday. Fuseli painted this picture in 1790, and it was, as you heard, the one that enabled him to become an academician right here. Now let's look at the Tempest. Uh, no, I think we have to go backwards for the Tempest, don't we? There, there's the Tempest. Here we can see in the middle Prospero and the two natives, and they're both slaves, Ariel and Caliban. So can we take it that's Prospero's daughter standing behind Prospero there? She's called Miranda, who gives us the famous phrase, Brave New World, which in the play is a line of great irony as the world she's looking at is neither brave or new. It's made up of people full of old-world cowardices, rivalries, and treacheries. In both pictures, Fuseli has interpreted stories. This was a high-status activity. Hold on to that, please. It was a high-status activity. Because Fuseli was so good at it, according to the tastes and attitudes of the day, it enabled him to be accepted in the top artistic institution of the day, the one we're in right now. So I'll ask a rhetorical question here. If what Fuseli was doing was a high-status activity then, why isn't it a high-status activity now in education? What else might we say about these pictures? Do you think they both have a heroic tone? These heroes, both in their own ways magical beings, can we say supermen? Maybe, ubermensch, have been positioned center stage, mid-action, one striking down the serpent, the other commanding his slaves, the heavens and the seas. If you know the Tempest or the Norse myths, 
you'll know that other scenes and, in, and interpretations are available. The myths, for example, offer us the figure of Loki, who as the god of fire can create mischief and wreak havoc. The Tempest gives voice and space to a native slave's revolt, Caliban, which draws into the rebellion the servants and the aristocrats who are occupying, the, the servants of the aristocrats, I should say, who are occupying the island. Several times I've put Caliban's words, this island's mine, in poetry anthologies, and I've written about Caliban in my book about Shakespeare that I wrote for young people. These are all interpretations of mine. I've just demonstrated then, in the first minutes of this talk, how looking at these two pictures has set off trails of thoughts and opinions about the Norse myths and the Tempest. My central argument today is to say that, first of all, what Fusli has done here by painting scenes from literature, what I've done in the past with the stories that Fusli has drawn on, and what I've done right now, in front of you now, musing on how these stories exist in me and in popular culture, these are the kinds of activities that are being squeezed out of primary and secondary education. How is this being done? It's mostly as a consequence of what the government calls accountability. Schools are locked into a system of testing, inspections, and league tables. These are all high stakes because the governance of a school depends on them. Children's scores in tests are aggregated and tracked over time. And if a decision is made that the school is inadequate, it can be forced out of, for example, local authority control and become an academy. Or if it's already an academy, mysteriously, it can be forced to become another academy. <laughs> no matter what one thinks of this as a way of managing schools and managing standards, you can see that the whole apparatus rests on testing children. It's legitimate then to look at the tests themselves and ask some questions. I'll restrict this for the moment to primary school children. Firstly, what kinds of knowledge do the tests test? And then, what kinds of effect on education do these tests have? So now, this may sound tautological, but I'll start by saying that the tests only test what is testable, <laughs> according to the kinds of test they are. By this I mean that there are pencil and paper tests which ask children questions for which there are only right and wrong answers. Well, this tells us straight away that there are whole areas of knowledge which are excluded. And just to be clear, I mean knowledge that is both know what and know how. I'm sure you could think of some things that are excluded. Here are mine. How to save someone's life, how to feed someone, how to be compassionate, how to cooperate with others, how to be brave in the face of people being overbearing, bullying, or who persecute you, how to hold two equally valid ideas in your head at the same time, and how to plan. More specifically, if you look closely at the questions on a SATS paper, you'll see that quite specifically, there's only one possible answer for any one question. This is from last year's SATS paper for 10 and 11-year-olds. The children were asked to read a poem. They were asked, the experience of the last line could best be described as amusing, or shocking, or puzzling, or comforting. The marking guide that the teachers use to mark the test show that only one of these words is right. Notice in the question there's a passive construction, 
could best be described? Could best be described by whom? Who is this best describer person? <laughs> On what basis does best describer person come to their conclusions? I'm getting a picture here of a great God, best describer, <laughs> roaming the world of poetry tests, who always knows best. Perhaps Foosley could draw it for me. <laughs> it's through passive constructions like best be described that passivity is taught. The passive teaches passivity. Children are asked to accept that an unknown, unchallenged and unchallengeable authority runs poetry. <laughs> I thought it was poets who run poetry, but what do I know? Actually, when I read the test question, I had two subversive thoughts. First, that none of the words on offer best describe the last line. I could think of some others that I think are better. But as it was me doing the test, in my mind, I remembered the rule. I must not think of other words. I must not think of other words. My other thought was, those words on offer in the question could at a push all describe the last line. That's what poetry is like. The words in a poem slide about full of ambiguity, suggesting one thing which, if true, might suggest something else, which might suggest something else, on down a chain of meaning. In fact, nearly 90 years ago, William Empson wrote a book which showed us just how ambiguous poetry can be, and often is, called The Seven Types of Ambiguity. Why did he just restrict it to seven? I don't know. That's a joke. Poetry <laughs> is not a store of right and wrong facts. To treat it as such, which this SAT test does, is to distort and wreck poetry. The reader of a poem is not someone who takes specific lumps of meaning out of a poem as if they're taking eggs out of an egg box. If I take that metaphor further, I'd say, well, if they are eggs, you can't actually use the egg for much until you open the egg up and cook it according to your taste and culture. What are you going to have? Scrambled, poached, fried, it says fired here, fried or boiled or perhaps an omelette. In other words, interpretation. You interpret the egg. We make meanings. That's just one question. Multiply that many times, not just in terms of that test. Think now of the second of my questions. What kinds of effect on education do these tests have? Well, one direct effect is that children spend hours and hours and hours doing practice testing. In other words, the test method or test way of thinking is instilled into children as being the best way, the only way, the authoritative way of doing things. Here's my guide to education. You get education in schools. To find out how much education you get, the government gives you tests. Before you do the tests, the government likes it if you're put on different tables that show how well or badly you're going to do in the tests. The tests tests whether they've put you on the right table. The tests test whether you know what you're supposed to know. But don't try to get to know any old stuff like what is earwax or how to make soup. The way to know things you're supposed to know is to do pretend tests. When you do the pretend tests, you learn how to think in the way that tests want you to think. The more practice you do, the more likely it is that you won't make the mistake of thinking in any other way 
other than in the special test way of thinking. Here's an example. The apples are growing on the tree. What is growing on the tree? If you say leaves, you're wrong. <laughs> it's no use you thinking that when apples are on a tree, there are usually leaves on the tree too. There is only one answer, and that is apples. All other answers are wrong. If you're the kind of person that thinks leaves is a good answer, doing lots and lots and lots of practice tests will get you to stop thinking that leaves is a good answer. Doing many, many practice tests will also make it very likely that there won't be time for you to go out and have a look at an apple tree <laughs> to see what else grows on apple trees, like ants or mistletoe. Education is getting much better these days because there is much more testing. Remember, it's apples, not leaves. But there's another effect. How this kind of testing, the preparation for this kind of testing, and the accountability model of testing, inspection, and league tables are transforming the timetable itself. Here are some observations from some teachers I asked. One, my college has cut A-level dance, film studies, music, more pressure on working-class students to take business-type subjects, and more academies with sixth forms hanging on to A-level students. Someone else. Our college has cut BTEC music and A-level music, dance, drama, textiles and graphic design, combination of factors including low recruitment as a knock-on from smaller number of students taking up creative subjects at GCSE. Another one. I'm not a teacher, but my year four son's English is only marked for spelling, grammar and neat handwriting. Ideas and creativity are never commented on, so it's hard for me to persuade him it's worth bothering. And arts projects seem designed only to provide classroom decoration. Kids are given very specific instructions, so are basically just colouring in. As a child aged 10, someone else, we did pottery with a kiln and glazes, acrylic moulding cutting and polishing, watercolours, woodworking, marbled paper making and calligraphy. My daughter at the same age does colouring in. They made something out of air-dried clay, but it broke by the time she got home. Someone else says, they brought in EBAC. Sorry if you're unfamiliar with some of the jargon that happens here. EBAC is they're a bit like Ewoks. They're, they're <laughs> related. But anyway, they brought in EBAC, which excluded the arts, and Progress 8, it's another one for you, uh, which all but eliminated them. The schools that have struggled the most to retain the arts are the same ones that struggle to achieve the limiting data figures that are supposedly so important. The greatest threat they have is the one that's been wielded across all disadvantaged areas. If you don't meet the data targets, then Ofsted will tell you you're failing your students, place you in special measures, that's a technical term, and the DfE sell you off to the highest bidder. Another one. I work in a special school and have been pressured to cut out creative arts almost completely. A few years ago, my timetable included plays, music, art, reading, writing for pleasure, and fun poetry. Now my managers, I think they're probably called head teachers as well, but anyway, now my managers want evidence of, quote, progressive writing and worksheets as these can be assessed for data. Another one. My secondary school in a socially deprived area of Newcastle now has no music at key stage three or four, so that's right the way through from year seven to uh, before A-levels, you know. I forget what, where it, I can't add up, so it, it's year seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That's very good, thank you. And um, no music teachers employed for the first time in my 23 years teaching at the school. 
In another one. In 2014, three pupils took A-level music. One was my son. Two others transferred in from elsewhere. By 2014, excuse me, A-level music was cut altogether. Uh, and so on. My secondary school, another one, tries to still offer creative arts, GCSE and A-level, and to offer extracurricular music and drama, but due to pressure, mainly from the English department, <laughs> students in year 11 and 13 were banned from taking part in productions. Get that right? English department banning kids from being in productions of plays. Is that right? Does that make sense? Yes. The last year they were allowed to take part when they missed part of an English lesson for the dress rehearsal. When they got back to the lesson, they were told how many marks they were likely to have lost as a result of missing a lesson. Year, another one. Year 11 students not achieving targets just get maths, English and science lessons. And the final one. I'm a secondary art teacher and we've had key stage three art lessons reduced from 50 minutes a week to an hour a fortnight. Additionally, from next year, there will be a two-year key stage three. In total, this means that students will receive 36 hours of art if they don't opt for it at GCSE. So what are these children and school students missing out on? Or put this another way, what can arts in education, arts in schools, offer children and school students? In an ideal world, they can offer trial and error without fear of failure. I say in an ideal world, trial and error without fear of failure, a chance to explore materials or aspects of the material world, whether that's your own voice through singing and speaking, your body through movement, dance and acting, or the materials like clay, wood, iron, plastic, stone, glass, or materials like pencil, charcoal, paint, pen, ink, canvas, film, video, and so on, or language itself which can only manifest itself materially through voice, print, digitally produced signs, and so on. Every artistic act starts with possibilities for change. It enacts change, it changes materials, it offers possibilities to the maker and to the viewer. I try to express this idea with a little poem. Take a brush. The sky is green, the grass is blue. You are purple, the house is silver, the river is gold, the sun is black, the world has changed. Did you do that? What I didn't express in the poem is that in changing things, we change ourselves. We are never the same as we were. We discover that we are not passive receptacles. We discover that we have the potential to change things. A good deal of art involves cooperation of some sort some more than others. A good deal of art involves us seeing things as others see them. It often involves making comparisons between how we see things and how others see them. The events of the 20th century tell us that this is desperately necessary if we're to avoid destroying each other or the planet or both. And let me come back to that word interpretation. All art, not just Fusli and the rest, who interpret across art forms, as Fusli did, involves some kind of transformation of what's already there, whether that's language or all the different kinds of materials I mentioned earlier. Transformation, interpretation, transformation. But interpretation is also a totally valid practice that takes place off the back of art or one art form. This is not the ritual of what the exam boards call retrieval, inference, chronology, and presentation. 
Interpretation involves using the available resources of our experience, and more specifically, our experience of other art forms and tests, uh, texts. <laughs> uh, Freudian slip. <laughs> Interpretation involves using the available resources of our experience, and more specifically, our experience of other art forms and texts. That's how we interpret. And one of the key parts of this is what we might call storying. You show me a story, or fragments of a story, as with Fusli's pictures, and I'll tell you a story. This exchange of stories that goes on every day of our lives is how we form the foundation of our abstract thoughts. In fact, it's not just storying, it's what I call analogizing. In order to story off the back of one story, I have to select one aspect from the story in front of me and compare it with one aspect of a story that's in the story library in my mind. I make analogies. I did it when I talked about the Graham Norton. The moment I make analogies, I'm beginning to categorize, generalize, and classify. I would suggest that is precisely what Fusli has done here. He's categorized Prospero or Thor as a type as selected from Fusli's library of types sitting in his head. Categories, generalizations, and classifications are highly prized in education, at least at the level of being told what they are, as when we're asked to read and learn. The following are types of erosion. The following are types of triangle. The following are types of figurative language. This is the familiar language of education. But what value do we put on the ability to do this through interpretation, through storying, and of course, through the arts themselves? That's my question for today. What value do we put on them? Thank you very much. Thank you. It, you paint an incredibly sort of sobering picture, and I'm sure it's one that many people will recognise. How do you think we have got ourselves to the point where we value what I think are called hard skills, you know, like the ability to do maths and science, rather than the soft skills of the arts, of, of literature, of interpretation? Um, it depends how far back we go on this. Um, if I'm going to make myself now, sitting here, a combination of Michael Gove and Nick Gibb, <laughs> so I'll now do some role play uh, where I become them, they would say, first of all, they would say the arts aren't being cut back. That's what they always say. No, they're not, because I, Nick Gibb, put 100 million into buying violins. <laughs> That's one argument. But there is an argument they have that they claim is egalitarian. So we better state it. I don't mind stating the arguments that are put against us. So the argument is, is that there's been a cruel conspiracy by liberals, lefties, and arty people and bohos of one sort or another to deprive working class and the disadvantaged children of knowledge. And that this is a, an evil conspiracy and that explains why there is the attainment gap. So the job of education and schools is to provide more knowledge and this must be knowledge what and not knowledge how and they make a distinction which I don't acknowledge myself, I don't recognize and so we must do more knowledge what and we must do as much of it as possible uh, from uh, reception class onwards. 
and pump in as much as possible because that's the only way the disadvantaged will become less uh, disadvantaged. And uh, that way we will compete better uh, with everybody, uh, Singapore in particular, uh, <laughs> but also China, which as you know, that's a fair match. Britain, China, it's about the same size. And uh, that's what we have to do. So that is the Govian-Gib argument. So that's why they're doing it. And that's why they've rejigged the curriculum in the way they have. And so we have to take that on and I'll answer that uh, the way... That's the argument we have to take on. That's why I say that point about storying. My key point is, though you use the word in inverted commas, soft skills, I would say that every conversation I ever have around the arts with young people, children, school students, it will involve storying, and the moment you story, provided the questions are open-ended and not closed-ended, at that point you are on the first platform of abstract thought. And you're on that level of abstract thought because you're immediately making analogies between the this here and the that there. And the moment you make those analogies, you are on the first step towards categorizing, classifying, just as nursery reception year one teachers do with apples, bananas, and onions with young children and say, let's make sets here, let's make series. Well, we do the same thing in our own mind with storying. And you can hear three-year-olds do it when you talk with them. When children talk to me about the bear at the end of Bear Hunt, the one who's walking away sadly, and they will tell stories if you open it up. So I think we have to take it on at the level at which the Gove-Gibb argument is made in relation to the thinker E.L. Hirsch, which where they derive their thoughts from. And how much do you think parents have changed in their expectations? I mean, how much are uh, parents, if you like, to blame for not putting, uh, fighting harder to keep creativity? No blame, no blame at all. You know, we get sucked in. We, we have to remember that the institution of education is incredibly powerful. At one level, it's, it's nothing. There are no troops, there are no soldiers, there are no police in education. But education is a powerful ideological tool. It's an incredibly powerful handler of people's ideas. But more than that, <coughs> we all have a history in education when we had powerful people teaching us, you know, and these were when parents come into school or send their children off to school, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we do it in the knowledge and memory of being told off, of being put in detention, of being told we couldn't do this and could do that. <coughs> so if education is that powerful, it's very hard to turn around to parents and say, you've got to do more, or you've got to do this, or you should have done that, you should have done, done so-and-so. And also in the face of these high-stakes tests. Of course, parents want to help. <coughs> so when you go into a bookshop, or when you go to WH Smith's, there are these spinners. And what are on the spinners? The pre-test practice tests for the testing. And of course, many, many parents think, this will help my children. I mean, I would say, you know, I see young, young parents going in and heading over to the spinner. What are they walking past in a bookshop? They're walking past where the wild things are. They're walking past... Um, you know, Lauren Child, who was on earlier, we, they, they walk past these to get at something that's going to help their children. And I feel like saying, actually, if you just, just, if you just come back here, <laughs> yeah. there's this where the wild things are, and if you read it, it, it's full of things that your child and you 
will be able to share and think about and talk about that will take you into places that actually ultimately will help you do that testy stuff, but will also enable you to do a lot more as well. But, you know, I, I'm not in every... It's a surprise to you. I'm not in every <laughs> W.H. Smith sort of hide, Rosen-S Hydra. <laughs> in every W.H. Smith's going, come this way. Where the wild Lauren Child, children's are over here. So I'm not there. Yeah. So there's some. I always think there's perhaps some irony as well that 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 um, children in houses where there is access to books, which on the whole will be um, sort of middle class homes, are very often the ones who, um, you know, will get that as a side, you know, side up now a sideline to school. Whereas the 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 children that the educational reforms are meant to assist don't have that, do they? I mean, how do you, I mean, how can people counter that? Really? Well, this is, yeah, there are several sides to this. Some of us have argued that's why you must put money into libraries, school libraries, classroom libraries, and the strange, nearly extinct thing called local libraries. And so we've said this is incredible at the very moment that you're talking about the, the, the attainment gap and disadvantage, you're actually taking away free books, I mean, all right, they're paid for out of taxation, but free at point of use. This stuff that, yes, if you like, educated families, I'd rather say rather than middle class necessarily, but people who have access and who've used books traditionally in their homes or wherever, but the very moment when the route to get it was completely free and that I have spent the last 15 years campaigning for governments to encourage the use of local libraries, I pleaded on my knees with several education ministers that they should make it um, compulsory, if you like, but that schools issue library tickets and maps of where the local libraries are. I've sat with parents who didn't know where the local libraries were. There are new arrivals or recent arrivals in the country. Why would they know that those big buildings sitting at the end of the road with lovely books in the windows, that that was free? Why would they know? They may not be free in their country. I mean, that's a totally legitimate thing. You wouldn't necessarily know. You know, it's, it's not easy when you go to another country to know what these buildings mean. And so it seems incredible at the very moment when this access to this stuff, whatever you, some people call it cultural capital, uh, we can go into that if you like, but some people call it that, that we actually deprive people of it. And instead we're having this form. Now it's not the knowledge that is the problem. This is my argument, all right? It is not the knowledge that is the problem, it is the form of testing that's imposed on it. I have plenty of arguments with various people about this, and it is the testing system and the segregating system and the selecting system, now even more firmly put in place through the uh, expansion of grammar schools, but also with the covert systems of selection and segregation going on around in education, that this new knowledge that is supposed to be liberating is at the same time the material that is being used to select and segregate. So we have a testing system that I've described to you that narrows down the notion of what we treat knowledge in terms of right and wrong, as opposed to open-ended free flow way of treating knowledge, but also that it's being used to select and the mysterious thing that's emerged in the last few weeks, that more and more children, students, are disappearing off-roll. We now have a new verb, off-rolling, okay, where people disappear from education, but also that there are at least 500, so said The Guardian a few weeks ago, illegal schools operating. We have PRUs, pupil referral units, uh, where again students disappear from 
aged 14, 15, and 16, and nobody knows where they go. And part of this is engendered by the testing system. Put it crudely, you run a school, do you want kids in your school who are going to fail the tests? No, you don't, because you'll slip down the league table. So you don't want kids mucking around doing art. So what you do is you put all your eggs, oh, there are the eggs again, all the eggs in one basket with English and maths and science. You do what are called interventions from the age of 14 onwards. But at the same time, there's kids being off-rolled and disappeared who aren't getting this knowledge that they say is actually making the disadvantaged less disadvantaged. I believe it's a hoax. That's what I believe. Mm. So what do you think, I, I mean, I think the other thing that's happened with education is that people feel slightly powerless to, um, to affect change. I mean, I, I've been in school meetings where parents have been arguing about tests and are just told that they're not, um, you know, this is how it's done and you can't do anything other than this. What advice would you have in terms of sort of pushing back against, you know, the loss of creativity, essentially, in schools? Well, indeed, education does seem like a kind of very shiny marble rock that you haven't got any kind of leverage with. Uh, over the last 30 years, education has become less and less democratic. Um, this has been going on simultaneously. So uh, the ex-head of the ILEA, Peter Newsom, charted very closely how it is that more and more power has been invested in the post of the Secretary of State of Education, that basically whoever that is, they can actually implement. They can open and close schools. Uh, as we've known over the running of the curriculum, they've managed to they have so-called consultants or consultative committees come in. If they don't toe the line, they're instantly sacked. Um, and indeed, uh, in the case of Michael Gove, he over, he's overruled. Uh, when he was the Secretary of State, he overruled certain recommendations and even got, I mean, this gets so loony that it's quite hard to even get your head round. Okay, so imagine a group of people sitting around, this is called the BU Committee, the BU Report, and they're sitting around discussing assessment and accountability. And they produce a very good report, or the interim report, on assessment and accountability uh, in the April of the year they're doing it. And then Mr. Gove arrives and says, yes, but that's all very well, but what we need to do is get more assessment and accountability of teachers, so what we need are right and wrong tests to be uh, implemented much more clearly, and then insists that one of these will have to be in grammar, because that produces right and wrong answers. Okay, there's not a linguist in the world that agrees with that, <laughs> but that's what Gove said. So whereupon this committee, of which there are no people on it who know anything about language, then creates something that was then called at the time the spelling, punctuation and grammar test. So they hire in a few linguists who then tell him what you could do to do that. Gove looks at it and says, oh yeah, but you've left out the subjunctive. <laughs> so the linguists explain to him that really the subjunctive in English is a bit dubious and they don't really like, because when they meet French and Spanish people, they just say the English subjunctive. <laughs> it's a bit... It's a bit small, isn't it? You know, not the size matters in these matters. But anyway, and they said, well, look, just steer clear of the subjunctive. And Gove said, I want the subjunctive. I want it. I've got to have the subjunctive. That's why in the SATS test for 10 and 11-year-olds, children have to go subjunctive spotting simply because Gove intervened in this particular test. That is the kind of micromanagement for which there's no... So your question, though, was about revolt and reply. Well, the teachers' unions do what they can do. There are several parent organisations 
uh, that are trying to organize people uh, to resist various aspects of it, but it is incredibly difficult. People are very nervous of addressing these matters, and indeed so are the opposition parties. The opposition parties uh, in, in England, because it only, only really applies to England, what I'm talking about today. Um, so, you know, Labour and the Lib Dems are very, very reluctant to go into this stuff to do with curriculum. They, they, a little bit, but uh, Jeremy Corbyn said that if Labour got into power, they would abolish SATs. That's what he said. That was the last thing that I heard him say yeah. about education. Yeah. On a personal level, both your parents were teachers, weren't yes. they? Um, like mine, oddly. And um, did you ever think of being a teacher? I mean, was, was there a point in your life where you thought, I want to be a teacher? Uh, yeah, I was, after I found out that I wasn't a very good actor, and before that, I found out I wasn't a very good doctor. So I jacked in medicine, then thought I'm going to do English and be a sort of actory, directory, producey person. And then I found out that when I acted serious, people laughed. And when I tried to do comedy, they didn't laugh. When I, <laughs> that didn't work out. So then I sort of thought, well, I'll be an English teacher. But hey... Before I do that, I'll just apply for the BBC and see if I can get in. And I did, until they fired me uh, for MI5, decided that um, I wasn't satisfactory. Um, uh, that's true, you think that's a joke, but it is true, I promise. Uh, and uh, so I got fired from the BBC and have been employed by them ever since. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's quite complicated. And um, so... I've ended up, ever since 1974, when you pointed out it was my first book, uh, I have, in fact, been going into schools. Mm. I am, in fact, an interloper, not a teacher. Yeah. So I go into schools, and I do end up doing a kind of teaching. But it isn't, strictly speaking, sort of uh, teaching, teaching as, as trained. And I teach at university. So, right. in fact, I have ended up as, in, in fact, almost a complete replica of my father. Right. <laughs> Which is, I mean, you said that uh, you wrote very sort of movingly about, he, he wrote a piece saying that about the oral experience in culture, and ironically, I mean, that is what you do, I mean, mm. isn't it, that you've brought into... Yeah. Um, he didn't die, in fact. Right. No, oh, it's, just, it's just me. <laughs> so it's, it's a, it, I'm a clone of my father. Yeah. Right. right. Possibly. <laughs> um, I'm really sorry, Tess. I'm really sorry for all of you who have got your hands up and want questions. I, we have to stop because there are other people coming in here. Um, Michael is um, going to be signing books after this, so that is an opportunity to speak to him. And if your appetite for conversations about the importance of poetry in particular have been whetted by this discussion, may I also point out that um, Lem Sisse is here tomorrow talking Ooh, about lovely. how poetry saved his life so I do recommend it that did. but in the meantime all that remains for me is to thank you for coming and to thank Michael thank you. For thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on